Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg and David French. We are going to talk about, of course, the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago. We're also going to talk inflation and what we learned from the primaries. But first, I want to mention, we recorded this episode before Attorney General Merrick Garland gave comments from the Department of Justice. Uh, In those comments, he said that the Department of Justice is moving to unseal the warrant and the property receipt absent objection from the former president. He also said that he personally approved the search and that he was not going to provide additional details as to the basis of the search at this time. So you're not going to hear any conversation of that with me and the guys, but I wanted to add my own two cents here at the top of the show, which is this seemed like the attorney general being able to really thread that needle, acknowledging what the public already knows about the search and moving to Uh, unseal the warrant, something, of course, that President Trump could have released at this point himself. I'm sure the Department of Justice thought that they would. Um, But seeking to find out whether the former president has an objection to that and then releasing that to the public, I don't expect necessarily the underlying affidavit, which will have all those nitty gritty details, how they found out, who their witnesses are, how recently those were. That's not what they're saying they're going to unseal. Just that copy of the cover page uh, and maybe two of the questions underneath that, again, that President Trump had uh, has and could have released himself. But the AG also, of course, not disturbing longstanding protocol of talking about the non-public aspects of an ongoing investigation. So threading that needle batting down some of the rumors that have been out there, Newsweek at one point publishing yesterday uh, that the AG had not signed off on the warrant, didn't know about it, that somehow only Chris Ray had signed off, which if you listen to our emergency podcast, I said wasn't even a possibility because that's not how the chain of command for search warrants works. That's done by the prosecutors. Lawyers have to present uh, search warrants to the federal magistrate judge. Uh, So I was happy that the attorney general was able to discuss some of those things. Really happy they didn't break that protocol that, again, when DOJ breaks the protocol of talking about ongoing investigations, it has universally turned out badly for the department, for the public, and for all the reasons that I've laid out before. I think DOJ threaded that needle today, and uh, we'll see what happens in the future. But now, a great conversation with the guys pre that press conference. heard from David and I on the technicalities of the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. So I think we want to hear about the political ramifications in your mind um, of within the Republican Party as Donald Trump, uh, you know, has Mar-a-Lago searched. Sure. Um, I think uh, I, so I, I got two different hats to answer this question. One is it's sort of the is ought distinction here, right? As a political matter, I think this has been very good for Donald Trump. I think it creates uh, this bizarre—I don't want to get too judgmental yet—but this, this this fascinating, this intriguing argument for him being the nominee of the Republican Party, for him declaring early, in part to fend up, make it more difficult to in- investigate him. It elevates him as the martyr victim guy on the right that everyone is talking about. Um, I think it has been wholly to Donald Trump's 
benefit and to the the Trumpers' benefits. And as I, I think it's creating all sorts of problems and calculations for people like Ron DeSantis and others um, about, you know, how to message on this stuff and whether this makes their potential bids for the president more difficult. Um, okay, that is the descriptive part. Here's the ought part. People are losing their freaking minds. Um, and the the search of Mar-a-Lago, which may have been, just as you guys talk about on your, your excellent niche podcast, um, it, uh, it may have been the dumbest screw-up, poor judgment in the history of the FBI, which would be saying something. I don't know. We don't know. I right now I think things point to the idea that this was a mistake, but I don't know, right? It does not mean that we are a banana republic. It does not mean that this this country is irredeemably corrupt. It does not mean, as Mike Huckabee has been arguing, that because of this, we should nominate Republicans should nominate Donald Trump by acclamation and just skip the primaries. It is when you look at the way people are talking about this, even if you again, I don't have no problem with being critical of it. But when you look at the way, like, say, Newt Gingrich is talking about how we need to view the or the FBI as a pack of wolves that are determined to eat us because they've declared war on the United States of America and the American people. Um, you know, Dinesh ranting about how they're now an organized crime organization. Um, this is Looney Tunes stuff. And it gives people and I, and it, and whenever the right succumbs to Looney Tunes stuff, it tends to be good for Donald Trump because he is, um, you know, the Bugs Bunny of Looney Tunes in this really strained analogy. David, the screenwriters for this show, um, you know, I, I do feel like they jumped the shark when they brought back Ronnie Jackson uh, <laughs> several years later. But here we are in season he was whatever. The Russian we're in. The pine barrel, right? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, and they really do like their parallelism. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the parallelism and what the Republicans and, uh, and the right think should have happened if Hillary Clinton had been given a subpoena. Sorry, Hillary Clinton was given a subpoena. If Hillary Clinton was subpoenaed by the FBI and refused to comply and hand over her server. Right. What do they think should have happened to Hillary Clinton at that point? I mean, we know what they think should have happened when she cooperated, which was to lock her up, right, uh, based on the underlying merits of the criminal allegations against her. And by the way, I was somebody, and I wrote this, I think Hillary Clinton should have been indicted, and I absolutely stand by that because I look, remember in our podcast, Sarah, um, I compared the actions, what would happen to Captain French or Major French in the similar circumstances. And I know exactly what would happen, just as I know exactly what would have happened in similar circumstances with Trump. And now I know those are not parallel. But right now, the, the parallel, like, to me, it's so striking. Um, Hillary Clinton, they think, mishandled classified information. They issue a subpoena for the server. She turns over the subpoena, uh, the server. She is not charged with any right. crime. Right now... Donald Trump was issued a subpoena, we now know, on June 3rd. We don't know the extent of his compliance, but I think it's fair to assume the FBI at least didn't feel that he complied. So they executed a search warrant, which at that point just takes them up to par with the Hillary Clinton investigation. And he has not been charged with any crime. So right now they're running one-to-one -one with each other through history. 
And I guess I know this sounds like a stupid question in many respects, but I really, really mean it. Why is the right not seeing any hypocrisy here or even <laughs> trying to explain what the difference is? I don't understand. I, well, Sarah, it's been this way since 2015. Okay. It's, it's been this way since 2015. And, and it's, this makes it particularly acute because one of the arguments surrounding the, the reason to vote for Trump over Hillary was related to Hillary's mishandling of classified information, which was seen to be so egregious that it disqualified her from the presidency. Okay. So, and then Donald Trump goes ahead and signs into law a law strengthening strengthening and making it a felony to mishandle classified information. So this was a very, very big talking point in 2015, 2016, 2017. You do not mishandle qual uh, classified information. Nobody who handles mishandles classified information is above the law. There was not just intense uh, disagreement with the FBI's decision not to charge Hillary. There was condemnation of the lightness of the um, plea bargain, the lightness of the punishment for Sandy Berger. There was criticism Absolutely. of the lightness of... Uh, side note, that Sandy Berger was the Clinton National Security Advisor, took things out of the National Archives. He pled to a misdemeanor and separately lost his law license. That was sort of the extent of it. I mean, just to give you a sense of the brazenness of what he did, it wasn't like he slipped yeah. stuff into a folder. He shoved documents in his pants and socks. There's an entire um, movie about it, Jonah. It's called, what is, uh, what's the one with Nicolas Cage? Oh, um, National Treasure? National Treasure, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a story of Sandy Berger. There, there, was, there was outrage at the lightness of the punishment for David Petraeus, but they were absolutely punished. They were absolutely punished. And there, this was the, this was the consensus, okay? But here's the thing, Sarah, this is no different than spending decades saying the Democrats are awful people for um, coddling Bill Clinton in the face of sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations, and then turning around and not just coddling Donald Trump in the face of sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations, but reacting with fury at anybody who points out the inconsistency. This is just transferring it into... A yet another realm. The precedent was set. The precedent has been consistently set that there are no standards that were previously Republicans previously held politicians to that apply to Donald Trump. And I think we, we've yet to see, we've yet to see that there is any action that he will take that will um, remove him, make him beyond the pale. We just haven't seen it. I don't know that we'll ever see it. Not only that, as Jonah has said, it I, I totally agree with Jonah's descriptive account here. It has given him a more solid hold on the Republican yeah. Party because there's a defensive aspect to this, uh, a rallying aspect to it. Um, I've had friends reach out and say, well, now I have no choice. I have to vote for Trump in 2024. What? Why? I can't get my head I around that. I just don't get it. I really, I just don't. I don't get hmm. it. I, okay, so fast forward not 24 hours, it felt like, and Donald Trump was supposed to sit for a deposition with the New York Attorney General in a civil lawsuit. And I will say, I was looking forward to seeing how that went. And for three hours or more, I mean, depending if you count the lunch break, Donald Trump 
uh, invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And I thought that the statement he released was actually very well done. He, you know, you can't invoke your Fifth Amendment rights because you don't want to answer questions. You have to say that you are in reasonable fear that a statement that you make could be used against you in a criminal proceeding or used to collect evidence in a criminal proceeding. And the way that statement was phrased um, was that, you know, he had previously said that people only invoke the Fifth Amendment when they're guilty. He now understands why someone would do it when they're innocent because these people are basically on a witch hunt to get him and they'll use anything they can. Uh, and so he can't say anything to them or they'll come after him criminally. It meets all the elements of invoking the Fifth Amendment, but in a pretty careful, clever way, as long as he sticks to that line, which fits with his overall narrative. So I think that he will. Uh, he's in pretty good shape. Now, as David knows, invoking your Fifth Amendment right in a civil proceeding is actually quite different than in a criminal proceeding. Nevertheless, I don't think he had a choice. I'm just surprised he took the advice of counsel. David, any additional legal thoughts before we move to the political or lack of political yeah. ramifications? Yeah, this, no, absolutely no political ramifications. Um, the, what's I think important for people to understand is what is the consequence of invoking the fifth in a civil case compared to a criminal case. So in a criminal case, you don't have to testify at all. You don't have to say one darn word in your criminal trial. You can invoke the fifth. You can, and there is no inference the jury is permitted to draw against you. They, they're not, they are not allowed to presume that what you say, what you would have been, what you would have said would have been incriminating. They're not allowed. This is a no-no. In civil cases, it's different. A jury is allowed to presume negativity. A, a jury is allowed to presume that what you would have said would have been bad. And in many ways, if you invoke the fifth in a civil case, it's it's kind of the kiss of death as a practical matter because the uh, the plaintiff side or the other side in the case, if it's plaintiff or defense, is allowed to kind of run wild with it. Why wouldn't they answer, jury? What are they hiding, jury? If they had nothing to hide, they'd, they'd have answered. They're afraid of criminal prosecution, jury. You know, so you can really take the ball and run with it. So it's a very consequential decision that you tend to undertake when, when you are willing to sort of sacrifice the smaller concern, the monetary damages at issue in the civil case, for the sake of protection in the larger concern, which is potential criminal punishment in a criminal case. Now, that does not mean that the person is guilty. It's just, here's what they feel like is reasonably at risk. And so um, I think that's a, that's a very important distinction to make here and to understand that he took the fifth when it could really come back and bite him in this case. He still takes the fifth Anyway, and once again, Sarah, this was another standard that is no longer existent, which is, you know, the as Trump himself acknowledged, you know, he formerly said, if you take the fifth, there's something wrong with you, but that's not a standard that exists anymore. So we're just knocking them down one after another. So this one, Jonah, I do understand why it has no political ramifications because of his explanation that if these people have a vendetta against him, which in fairness... Uh, Democrats do really, 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 really hate Donald Trump and have made very clear that if they could put him in jail, they would. Um, so in, in some sense, this one, 
not having any broader implications in the political climate makes perfect sense uh, as compared to, I think, the lock her up chance, which I'm I'm still I'm totally baffled by why nobody feels the need to be consistent on that one. Um, but assume that this uh, New York civil case moves forward. The Georgia criminal case moves forward. Basically, is there anything, Jonah, on the legal side that could change the political dynamics? Um, well, so first of all, I, I'm not sure I agree with you guys entirely that there are no political ramifications to this. I mean, I think there's political, put it this way, there's there's significant political data points in this. And so far as, in part, because, we will put it this way, the, the rate at raid, you know, I, I really reluctant to use the word because I don't want to buy into the argument on either side of like, was it a raid or not a raid? The search um, at Mar-a-Lago, you know, the, the, the jackbooted Gestapo assault on a private citizen's home in Mar-a-Lago um, allows Trump to link all of these cases together in a way that is more he, he would do anyway, but is much more compelling now as a talking point on the right. That he can say the reason why he's pleading the fifth is as he does in that statement, which I think is another politically salient point. That statement was really well done. It was probably one of the best statements that Trump ever did, which is obviously uh, proof that he didn't write it. Um, um, and so I think that the 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 elevation of his martyr status is gives him political cover to do whatever the hell he wants in these legal cases in ways that um, might have been a little more difficult to do a little while ago, would have been possible to imagine a Ron DeSantis or, or a Tom Cotton criticizing some things that he did in, in his legal defenses that now everyone has, you know, everyone on the right has to sort of give deference to. So I think there's some political significance there. Um, the Georgia thing, I mean, look, I mean, you guys know this better than I do, but the Georgia thing is a criminal probe. Like it, it is politically significant if Donald Trump is want, is a wanted man in Georgia, you know, yeah. if, like if a jury wants to send Donald Trump to jail, um, or, you know, that's, that's serious. And that has real political, you know. Uh, issues. Um, uh, I just don't know how likely that is, you know, and I, I, I would defer to you guys on, on that, but you know, that obviously has serious political possibility, you know, possibilities to it. Except if he's already announced for president, which is why I think he will do that sooner rather but than why? later. Why, why a state, a, a state criminal thing is different than the, the federal criminal thing, right? I don't want to get too technical with the <laughs> federal and the state thing, but you know, um, Sure, but a guy's running for president and then a jury convicts him. Honestly, I think he'd get elected from jail. Well, that would be it. And you don't think that would be politically interesting? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is interesting. I do not believe that the Georgia governor has the pardon power that most governors have. So, Ooh. so the... This, he must be so happy about oh that my right gosh. now. <laughs> so this is, this is what's interesting about state charges, and that is that 
a, a president cannot pardon uh, a defendant who has been convicted of state crimes. A president's pardon power is vast, but it's over federal crimes. It is not over state crimes. Well, who can pardon state crimes? Generally, governors can grant pardons in clemency. And I'm not 100% certain about this, but I think uh, Georgia has some limits on its governor's pardon power. Uh, so that is, because one of the first thoughts that I had was the pressure on Brian Kemp, once Trump announces, would be overwhelming to try to protect Donald Trump from a state criminal charge pending in Kemp's state. And Kemp is a stalwart Republican. Um, and now who defied Trump on the vote, but would he defy those who are saying you need to pardon Trump from this, potent, you know, this potentially you know, politically inspired bogus election fraud charge. Uh, so that's a that's an interesting question we need to put a pin in here. So I just looked it up. Um, this is from Wikipedia, but I generally think Wikipedia is pretty okay on this kind of stuff, but, you know, people can weigh it any way they want. It says, uh, Georgia is one of the three states whose governor does not have the authority to grant clemency although the governor retains indirect influence by the virtue of the fact that he gets to appoint the members of the parole board, which is actually the thing that, uh, that's the Georgia state board of pardons and paroles, which is a five member panel. And, um, that would be interesting. I mean, I think Jonah has changed the metric here. I said politically like relevant to the outcome. Jonah has changed it to politically interesting. All of this is politically interesting, Jonah. The end of the Roman Republic is politically fascinating. Well, okay, so uh, you don't you don't think a a the a Georgia prosecution, a indictment prosecution and or conviction of Donald Trump is politically relevant or important to the outcome? I actually don't. To what outcome? The, the election? Him becoming president. Okay. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to stump from the prison cafeteria, but, you know, uh, you know uh, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's move on to our next topic, inflation. So let's break this down a little. The Biden White House comes out And the president says that we've had zero inflation in the month of July. And on the one hand, you have people saying that that is absolutely accurate because from June to July, there was 0% increase in prices. And then you have, on the other hand, a whole bunch of people saying, yeah, but when I look at my grocery bill and it's 25% higher than it was last year. Are you out of your mind? And it is true that July 2022 compared to July 2021, in fact, inflation has been uh, about 8.5% overall. That's not including food, which was actually higher, uh, but they don't include food in uh, what we call the inflation numbers. Okay. 
So you have actual economic definitions and timeframes versus what Americans are experiencing. David, did the Biden White House make a mistake saying that there was zero inflation? Not from an accuracy standpoint, because again, it is accurate if you're doing month to month. It's not accurate if you're doing year to year, but he didn't say he was doing year to year. So what he said was true. No pants on fire. But was it a communications Uh, mistake? I think it's a communications mistake. I think you can say things like leveling off. Inflation is easing. It is leveling off, but still prices are too high. You You can say there are signs of hope here. You can say that we're making progress here. When you say 0%, what is that what that is telling somebody is that the inflation what that tells a normal person because you want to think about how are normal people receiving this, it's telling them no, inflation's gone. <laughs> inflation is at 0%. It is gone and it doesn't square with reality. Now, I will say that you do notice the gas price change. Like the gas price change is really, really obvious. But you don't have to message that with a 0%. You can say gas prices are getting lower. You can get more, just use normal person language. And I think that's what he absolutely could have done. Instead, he went with something that is technically true, but experientially false. And that's a problem. Jonah, I think the argument would be something like, look, yes, if you want to talk about how people are experiencing prices, you use year to year. But if you want to make predictive assessments over what's going to happen next, and the month to month is actually way more helpful. Like if you just say last year to this year, it's 8.5%, then projecting, you would then say, oh, well, then I guess next year it'll rise another 8.5%. That's why you look at the month to month numbers, because it shows inflation leveling off largely because of gas prices. And so what they were trying to convey was something like what David was saying. Um, inflation is still, you know, we had inflation, it's here. It's not, we're not going to go down in prices, but it does appear to be leveling off so that prices will not continue to increase. Why is that not a good political message? Yeah. So, um, and I want to say, you know, like Jason Furman was now a Harvard economist, but he's sort of like the, the honest liberal economist, um, these days, uh, He's been saying for a long time that we should look more at the month to month than uh, than the year to year. Um, and I have no problem as a matter of economic analysis looking at the month to month. I think the way to think about this to understand why people get pissed off is imagine it's a heat wave and every day is hotter than the next. And then one day it's 98 degrees out. And then the next day it's 98 <laughs> degrees out. Get it out. And you say, it's not a heat wave anymore. And people are like, screw you. I'm schwitzing here. Right. And that's the thing. It's the, um, what is schwitzing? It's, it's schwitzing seriously, is Yiddish for sweating. Oh, okay. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, like, like, like schwitzing. It, it's, it's like when, um, old fat Jewish men go to the, the steam or the, the, uh, or the sauna and say, Let, let's go for a schwitz. Um, and, um, where was I? Oh yeah. So like, I think the problem here is that Biden has a really long history of doing this and he's been really bad at it as president. And it it sort of, it permeates so much of their messaging of thinking that they can fix a political problem by using clever wordplay and by just sort of like being technically accurate 
Um, or like what Biden like loves to do is just sort of like bluster and bully people, sort of like when he debated Paul Ryan, just yell malarkey and like and and that will just establish it as being true. He has a long history of just sort of asserting stuff as fat, you know, and I I mean that literally and all that kind of thing. And for the average American, it's their wages haven't gone up 25% over the last year. So when you say inflation is over, which which the average American views as really high prices that I'm having I'm struggling to keep up with. And then you say inflation is over because it pla- they plateaued at a really high point that you're still struggling to keep up with. People are like, you're just trying to, to hoodwink me and they get pissed off. And um, and so I just I, I think there are all sorts of ways he could have talked about this. We're turning the corner. Right. Um, this is really great news. You know, our policies are working. Stay the course. All that kind of thing. But they want quick fixes because they and I say this, I feel like I say this on every podcast now. They are obsessed with the 24-hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. And all of their messaging is like, if we can just get Nicole Wallace to say at the end of the day when we turn on our TVs, um, the thing that we want her to say, then we'll have convinced America. And like Nicole Wallace is, doesn't speak for America. She speaks for a tiny little MSNBC audience. And she's going to say what you want her to say anyway. It's just no great victory. And I think their obsession with messaging really hurts them. What about the Inflation Reduction Act? I mean, it's literally called the Inflation Reduction Act. Is this poised to be a big win for the Biden White House on this overall economic messaging? Uh, It has not passed the House yet, but presumably it will. And then it'll go to Biden's desk for signature here shortly, I imagine. Um, And uh, they have so far, I think, not capitalized very well on their legislative victories. And in part, I I mean, I have to say this is, you know, they pass this through the Senate, through Manchin, through Cinema, and it gets totally drowned out once again by Donald Trump. And I can't help but feeling very 2015 vibes when it comes to how the news cycle covers this stuff. You have an actual piece of legislation with billions of dollars of taxpayer money about to be spent and then you have a search warrant being served on Donald Trump's house. <sighs> How is the Biden White House going to overcome this? It also contaminates um, the Trump thing. Also contaminates this in the 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 massive new doubling of IRS agents. Yeah, thing. yeah. You know, DeSantis was very smart about Ron, Gov, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was very smart about saying, you know, that these things are similar because they're, and I hate, hate his use of the word regime, but like the regime um, is hiring more people to go after you just like they're going after Trump. And again, I think factually it's kind of a dumb talking point, even though I'm like, I think there's a lot of dumb talking points on the left about all of this IRS stuff. Um, But I think it's politically effective, particularly in sort of primary, you know, Republican party base world. David inflation reduction act. Will it actually help the Biden administration convince people that they're reducing inflation? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that, you know, I do think that there's some extremely mild cleverness around naming it the Inflation Reduction Act. But the weird thing about the act is that if you actually watch how people who, who if you actually watch sort of the progressive commentariat talking about this, it's mainly this the Inflation Reduction Act is going to help the climate. 
like that is seen by almost everyone who's really looking at the, at the effects of this bill as the more concrete and most tangible aspect of the bill is that it's going to have impact on the climate. But, you know, here's what's interesting, and I'd love to see what y'all think of this, because this may be just something that's completely in my mo- own mind, in my own head. We have passed such expensive legislation for the pa- ever since the pandemic hit with numbers well into the trillions, you know, from your first COVID relief package to your next COVID relief package to your next COVID relief package to your infrastructure package. And they're, and we're used to this 1.9 trillion, 1 trillion. And I wonder if this just seems like small ball by comparison to some of the other stuff. But ironically enough, I think it's the fact that it was smaller, of course, that got it through. And so I just wonder in the context of the other, the rest of the big spending that we've seen, if this just isn't making much of an impact because top line to people, it looks like a smaller, a small ball compromise, not something that's really going to move the needle one way or the other. Can we talk about the IRS agents for a second? Yeah. Uh, is this a good thing that we're going to better enforce our tax laws? Or is the right right to freak out that more IRS agents is just harassment? I think the argument, like, so I know we're not supposed to talk about our Twitter activity here, but <laughs> a couple of days ago, I did a, I thought, and I still will defend to my last breath, an utterly defensible little thread about how I've been audited twice and how I really get annoyed by all these people saying how if you haven't done anything wrong, you shouldn't care about getting audited. And if you've been audited, David, I think you were audited. Remember, yes. Oh, you, yeah. I remember you talking about yeah, yeah. Being audited, you know, uh, to paraphrase Bart Simpson talking about Old Faithful, both sucks and blows. <laughs> it is an awful, <laughs> awful experience. And it's full of stress and dread and you're trying to find pieces of paper and you're worried that you're going to owe a lot more money and you're you know, worried about all these kinds of things. And even if you did nothing wrong, it's it's terrible. And when people and so I have no problem with the federal government being having the power to audit people. I think it should have the power to audit people. Um, but it's a serious power. It's a more vastly more invasive thing than being frisked, I would argue, um, in the sense that, yeah, OK, no one likes being frisked. And I understand you don't like to have you know the heavy hand of the state literally on your body and all that kind of stuff. But like being able to go over everything that you ever purchased on a credit card, being able to go over everywhere you've traveled to, um, you know, all your health expenses. I mean, this is like a very intrusive thing. And so I don't mind people being upset about the idea that they're going to be more audits. I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing in a democracy, in a liberal republic to talk about. Um, At the same time, I don't think as some people are saying it's an expansion of the police state or any of that kind of thing. David, shouldn't we I have be, <laughs> shouldn't we want the tax code enforced like more? I mean, we're assuming that all of these individual people are just doing audits, but there's a whole lot of other stuff the IRS does short of auditing people. Look, I mean, as with so many things, there's a balance, right? If you are, uh, you ca- if you pass laws with no enforcement mechanism over time, they're ultimately not really laws at all. So enforcement does matter. Efficient enforcement does matter. But at the same time, Dragnet enforcement really stinks. And this is what happened to me. So we adopted in 2010. This was a year when the adoption tax credit was made fully refundable. 
It was the only way that lots of families could afford to adopt, quite frankly. Well, the IRS decided to do a dragnet audit enforcement of adoptive families in 2010 and 2011, so that 68% of families who claimed the tax credit in 2010 and 69% of families, think about those numbers again, 68% and 69% of families who claimed adoption tax credits were audited, okay? Now, what makes this particularly difficult is if you were like us and you adopted internationally, a lot of the demand for receipts, I mean, what, did it, what does it help an IRS agent when you hand someone a handwritten receipt that's in Amharic with Ethiopian currency, <laughs> right? I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And what did they find? No criminal fraud at all in 2010 and 2011 out of those nefarious adoptive families. So I think a lot of it is, okay, sure, absolutely. If somebody is a tax cheat, um, you're going to find very few people who think that we should not have the mechanism to catch them. The other thing is a lot of people have actual experience with the IRS and know that they're not always going after tax cheats. Sometimes they'll have a program where they'll say X population of people, say earned income tax credit recipients or whatever, we're going to start auditing them at a higher rate. Okay, well, that's not an individualized determination. That is much more of a dragnet. And so this kind of thing, I think we don't, they're, they're the, uh, as with so many things, the argument gets so simplistic. It's, well, if you, if you have dotted your I's and crossed all your T's, you don't have anything to fear. Well, we dotted ours and crossed our T's when we adopted, but my gosh, that audit was stressful and intrusive. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, there's also all this data that people are pointing out and I don't think they, they've thought through the conclusions one can draw from this fact, but it turns out that like poor people or low-income people get audited a lot, mm -hmm. a lot more than rich people. And they say, oh, they, so this is just fairness that we're going to audit rich people more or something. And I, I, okay, but at the same time, if you're rich, the stress of an audit is much less than if you're poor because you have the ability to defend yourself. There's no other realm of life where it's sort of like, you know, there, there are some things where just the process is the punishment, you know, just being like, like if, if you've been deposed as, as, you know, in a, in even a civil case, having to get a lawyer, having to do all that, it's, it's sort of a punishing thing that you come out the other side with, you know, poor and, and pissed off. Um, <laughs> we can talk more about that another time. Uh, but like, to be audited and you have very few resources is a brutal thing. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the IRS is the only law enforcement agency I can think of. Maybe you guys know different that works from a, in a very serious way from the presumption that people are guilty of something. Yeah, you have to prove your and innocence. You have the burden of proof. Burden of proof is on you and the burden of proof is on you because you are randomly selected often. You know, it's like, there's an algorithm that says, we're going to look at these tax returns and then we're going to assume if there's anything fishy, it was, you know, you have to prove that it wasn't criminal. If you did that in with any other sort of thing, people would instantly recognize that this is a really problematic thing to do. And I understand that we do need to enforce our tax laws. We do need to raise revenue and all that, um, you know, because sacrificing goats to Baal has not paid off the way we would like. But just the cavalier way the left talks about this is really bothersome. And I don't think that they appreciate 
how, again, that's really bad messaging for them. And getting back to the Inflation Adjustment Act, I think because it's such a grab bag, it everything that the left likes to celebrate about it provides an opportunity for the right to beat up on it. So I think it's going to be much more of a wash in the long run um, than, than people claim. And I don't think it's going to do nearly the things for the environment that they're all claiming either. So. Interestingly, the uh, Joint Tax Committee, a nonpartisan group, estimates that the tax gap is about $381 billion a year, most of it from underreported income. You know, you do that with, we're about to have this huge bulge in federal employee retirements, eligible for retirements. And so a lot of these groups, I think, are just trying to keep up with the big hump of retirements coming. But I take all of your points, and I think it's really interesting. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk primaries. We had another round of primaries this time. Wisconsin sort of leading the headlines. Also, Uh, despite what it kind of looked like on election night, another of the House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington state, actually lost her primary. It was a nail biter, but a week later she conceded. So of the three who had primaries last week, two lost, including one in a nonpartisan primary and just a top two finishing primary. Um, And we've had another week as the Kansas stuff sort of reverberates. David, oh, and it's worth mentioning, next week we have the Wyoming primary with Liz Cheney, the ad that Dick Cheney cut for his daughter uh, now showing up on Fox News. Primary season in August, David. Top line thoughts. Sarah, I want to retreat to my happy place. And my happy place is the day after the Georgia primaries when Brad Raffensperger won and Brian Kemp won. And there was some signs that some things were changing. Um, Wow. The last few weeks have really been a wake-up call for the argument that the Republican Party is moving on from Trumpism. Um, the, The... Picture with regards to the, you know, the the House members who voted to impeach, as you said, has suddenly turned much more grim. Uh, Wisconsin, it was the Trump endorsee that won. Uh, There's just not a lot of, we're still dealing with the, you know, I believe since we last did a dispatch podcast, Carrie Lake was officially declared the winner in Arizona. 
Um, so this is the last month or so has really dispelled any hopes that the Republican Party is wanting to move on from Trump or Trumpism. And I think that that much of it has just, that's at this point almost incontrovertible to the extent that something's really incontrovertible in politics. And one of the questions that I have is, what does this message send to the folks who are thinking about challenging Trump? Uh, are they are they looking at this and saying, there's no room there? Um, he's still retaining a lot of power, even when he's not on the ballot. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in what y'all think about that. Let me add two more factors to that. It certainly will have an effect on people thinking about running for office in the future. You know, you were like looking at your congressional seat for 2024, maybe 2026 even, and deciding whether to run. This will have a self-selection effect, certainly, of the type of person who runs for office on the Republican side for potentially a long time moving True. forward. Because you also are going to have people who sort of foreclose even the possibility of running for office in the future and aren't going to think of it again for a long time, uh, A. B, you know, I do think that we are missing some of the larger story here by focusing on the primaries. A Trump candidate getting through the primaries doesn't matter if they don't win in the general. So what we're actually going to want to look at is come November, how many Trump-endorsed candidates actually get into office. And that delta might actually be really interesting. If a ton of Trump-endorsed candidates then lose the general election so that there actually aren't many Trump-endorsed candidates holding political office, that in and of itself could also have a big effect, not on who's going to run for office, because you still can't get through the primary, it looks like, but on how Republican leadership thinks about these things if they don't take back the Senate. Um, so that's where I am on the August primaries, uh, that at this point, it's all now, you have to do both. You have to win the primary and the general. It is very clear who's winning the primaries in the Republican Party, but it's very unclear who will go on to win the general. Jonah? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, it's funny. I wrote my L.A. Times column on how there was like this vibe shift and things were looking up for the Democrats. And, you know, so my L.A. Times column gets repurposed as my syndicated column and appears on the dispatch, you know, the next day. And I had to rewrite the whole thing because the, the Mar-a-Lago thing completely... Instituted another vibe shift, right. right? And and the sort of and part of the point of the original column was how you know I, I think the lead was something like you know why people say X is in a is a lifetime in politics? It's because politics can change really fast. And, and like I got burned by that because it changed on me on a so that a column about how things change in politics fast became irrelevant <laughs> within twenty four hours. I like and, that. I like that a lot. Um, and so. Uh, but I went through, you know, like the Trump endorsees for Senate. Again, it's summer. It's August. Who knows what the Mar-a-Lago thing does? Um, but it's not looking good for Trump's endorsees, right? I mean, in in Pennsylvania, Oz is behind, I don't know, like eight points, something like that. J.D. Vance is uh, is at the very least struggling um, against Tim Ryan in Ohio, uh, Blake Masters, I think, will lose in part because even if he can avoid seeming too crazy, uh, the top of the ticket is Kerry uh, Lake, who's, you know, bat guano nuts um, in a state that's increasingly becoming purple. 
Um, and so, you know, you can just imagine what Mitch McConnell says in the quiet of in seclusion of his study when he looks at how he could very well lose the Senate um, in a gettable year, all because he didn't do what he did in previous cycles, which was pick the most electable people in the primaries and boost them and help them. Instead, he's let Trump play that game uncontested. And it's go- it, I, I think the Republicans are not going to win the Senate. I mean, I, I think it's just, it, I, I could be wrong, but I, I think it certainly trends look like they're going that way. And, um, and so I keep thinking back, remember in 2018 when the Republicans just got destroyed in the midterms? Um, and Trump gave this press conference and everyone expected him to do the, I got shellacked thing the way Obama did when he got shellacked. And instead his explanation for why all these Republicans lost was that they didn't embrace him more fully. And he went person by person through these Republicans who lost because of Trump saying that if the only, you know, if, if only they had embraced him, you know, did not embrace, did not embrace, that they would have done better. And I think that this is the key to understanding is that Trump would rather a Republican Party that loses, that he controls, than a Republican Party that succeeds, that uh, he doesn't control. And that's, it looks like that's what he's getting. And uh, I think the Republican Party could be coming a rump party. But I also think the Democratic Party could be coming a rump party because everything sucks for them, too. <laughs> David, do you think Republicans would win the Senate if the election were held today? No, no, I don't think so. I think that um, they're going to, I think they would lose in Pennsylvania. I think Ohio is too close to call. I think they lose in Georgia, so they don't get that pickup. Um, I I think they lose in Arizona. I, it's a, it's, I said that uh, no quickly, but that betrays more uncertainty <laughs> than uh, the, I have more uncertainty than my quick no betrays, but, um, I, I don't think so. I, I think that the candidate quality where candidate quality really, really, really matters is in these Senate races. Um, there are house candidates that have won primaries who are, Oh, something else. Um, there's a guy in the neighboring district to me named Andy Ogles, Oh my gosh, that guy. Uh, and he won a Republican primary, but he could just go ahead and tattoo Q on his forehead and probably still win the general in a, this gerrymandered district. Um, so in the House races, the candidate quality doesn't matter quite so much. In these Senate races, the candidate quality really matters. And this is something that's been going on for a while. I mean, remember Senator Sharon Angle? Senator Christine O'Donnell, no, they never made it, right? And so um, th- this is this is something that I think that could really, really bite the Republicans, but not so much in the House. Uh, I think the Republicans are still strong favorites to take the House. And if you think the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates caucus was a factor, is a factor now, just wait until it triples in size uh, in 2020 in 2023. So I think there's a tension there. Senate, this really matters. House, these races, these primary races are the general election race most of the time. And that's where you're going to really see some change. Sarah, do you disagree with that? Do you I, think they were- I'm going to pick apart my disagreements with David's map there. Uh, I think he's right. They would lose Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania today. I think you're weirdly, I think you are probably right if the election were held today in Ohio. But, of course, the election won't be held today right. in Ohio, and the Democrats have been up 
uh, on TV. The Republicans will be up on TV. And I think that'll actually have the, you know, that's just a, a timing of when you send in your reinforcements. So I think Republicans will keep Ohio. Uh, because of Pennsylvania, though, then they need a pickup, um, an, an additional pickup, so two pickups. I think that Republicans, I would still favor in Arizona. The problem is that I think Blake Masters is one of the most talented Senate candidates this cycle, but he's going to get dragged down by Lake at the top mm-hmm. of the ticket for governor. And how that'll play out, whether he helps her or she hurts him and to what degree, um, makes that just a really hard race to gauge because the polling isn't going to be that helpful. Because even if you like masters, that that top of the ticket poll could have a real effect both on turnout and uh, how people end up voting in the end if they're going to really split their vote on governor and Senate. And so then you come down to Georgia because if you lose Pennsylvania, you've got to win Arizona and Georgia. Yeah, I think I think Georgia's a coin flip at best. So I'm like 49-51 um, on Republicans taking the Senate, but it's I'm I'm closer than David, I guess. Can you imagine like having all your dreams of being majority, the longest serving majority leader? <laughs> um, like it's the reason you're you get out of bed every morning, and on election night, it all comes down to Herschel Walker. Yeah who is like at any given moment likely to say something that, you know, I mean, I always used to joke about how at any given moment, there's a non-trivial chance that Joe Biden would say, get these squirrels off of me. (laughs) Um, But like Herschel Walker, you know, could say all sorts of stuff that makes Joe Biden's crazy stuff seem, you know, sane. And so I don't know. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm dubious. And I, I, my point is, is that you could easily have seen a situation where if Mitch McConnell did what he did in 2012 or whatever, and, and actually went into primaries and picked, you know, the, the, the sharp elect general elect candidates, most able to win in the general election, you could see the Republicans, you know, what, picking up what, four Mm -hmm. seats, five seats, you know, and that's just not going to happen. And remember, McConnell endorsed Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker was the pick of everyone. So they don't really have people to blame on on that one. But I just find it fascinating that Republicans should have had a Senate majority already. They should have won the Senate in 2020. Right. And then they should have massively built on that here in 2022, just based on the map alone. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. And the Herschel Walker situation, frankly, is sad. It's 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 yeah. really sad. He's obviously, and it's pro, you know who knows. You don't want to diagnose from a distance, but I mean the guy took a lot of hits in football. Took a lot of hits, and and he's just not right. He's just not right. And then the ads, you know, where his his ex wife talks about the first time he held a gun to her. You know that that's awful, brutal, horrible stuff. Now. There's a Tennessee representative, let's just stick with my state, Desjardins, uh, who, you know, he, his ex-wife accused him of all manner of awful things. And there's a lot of evidence that he did all manner of awful, awful things. And he keeps coming on back to Congress, but that's in a heavily gerrymandered, super red district. This is a, a state that just sent two Democrats to the Senate and voted for Joe Biden. So there's not as much margin of, margin of error there. So that that's why. And then there might be one debate uh, 
that could be interesting. Also, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat senator from Georgia, is a very talented candidate. Yeah, and but also Brian Kemp is running away with it, it seems, against mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams at the top yeah, of the ticket. So, so you have a re- you have a Republican candidate for Senate who is underwater and underperforming the let's be clear about it, not exactly beloved by Trump crowd, um, Republican candidate for governor. Um, it just, my point is, is that this was a, and I agree with you that, that Mitch McConnell agreed to the Herschel Walker thing, but you could tell he was like, okay, this is the one we're going to give Trump. And then in the rest of these primaries, we're going to pick good candidates. And you could see how reluctant he was to do it. I think it was a mistake that he did it. You know, so many of the mistakes that you see these days in the Republican party, for the last five years have all been like, we don't need to have a confrontation right now with him. We can do that later. And that never works out for anybody. I don't know, but like so my, my friend, Kevin, uh, David's friend too, uh, Kevin Williamson, he had this piece where he points out, you know, that this sort of, this, this obsession with BS, to use the more delicate phrasing of it, that has so permeated the Republican Party hasn't actually been good politically for the Republican Party. It lost the presidency. It lost the House. It lost the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, it's 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 lost. You know, uh, small dollar donors of, are down, way down. Yeah, and like, but there's this assumption because it worked for Trump, it should work for everybody, and that it's smart politics. And I just I, I have a sense that it's just like there's going to be a realization at some point. Being, you know, that that excessive jackassery um, that is induced by getting high on Fox greenroom farts is not exactly the way to run one of the two major political parties. But it's going to take a little while for that realization to set in. I just like that we're going to have the mirror image in Arizona and Georgia to really be able to study that ticket splitting mm-hmm. between a governor's race and a mm-hmm. Senate race with the stronger person uh, in Georgia on the governor's side and the stronger person in Arizona on the Senate side. And it could be really lopsided. It might not be an even effect. Uh, you know, governor may have more of an up. Senate may have more of a drag. Who knows? Um, all right. Let's do a little not worth your time. And really, listeners, uh, this is just not worth your time, but it's going to be very much worth my time because I have a question for the guys. Assume for a second, accept my hypothetical, um, that you are a lazy parent who wants to minimize uh, sort of travel time in the car, unpleasantness in your general minute-to-minute life, and that you don't care about your child's overall happiness, really. (laughs) Take those two pieces and Mm -hmm. tell me what sport one should encourage their child to get into if those are your two guideposts. You don't care about your kid's actual happiness, so we don't care what sport the kid wants to play. And two, you want to sort of maximize your own happiness, which would be not traveling really far in the car and, um, you know, not being bored, having temperature control, things like that. Are we assuming as part of this that they will have some talent or proficiency at it, or that doesn't matter? Yeah, let's assume that they can play any sport. They're, They're Michael Jordan, and they'll be pretty good at whatever. Because genetically, you know, their dad is 6'3 and a beanpole. So probably that fits for most sports. <laughs> I got my answer just right off the top of my head. Basketball, basketball. So here's why. Really? Yes. Okay. So 
it's a fun sport. It's exciting to watch parents. It's, it's fun for parents to watch number two, because it's everywhere. So basketball is everywhere. So even if your kid plays travel ball, it's just traveling from often from one part of the town you're in to another part of the town you're in five miles away. Like even things like travel volleyball, even though volleyball is played everywhere or travel soccer, you're just spreading out more. You're just, you're spreading out a whole lot more. There's gyms everywhere in America and they're mainly purposed for basketball. So the volleyball's in second in line. There's not soccer fields everywhere. So you're traveling more. Um, and so it's, it's just a lot of fun when my son played and, and I know of what I speak because my son played travel basketball. My, my daughter played travel volleyball. My son played pra- travel basketball for a short bit till he transitioned more fully to football. But when my son was, di- was completely into basketball, we barely moved. <laughs> like we, you know, we did not go too many places when my daughter was in travel volleyball and I know she listens to this podcast. Hi, Camille. Um, we, we loved it, Camille. It was a blast. <laughs> it was fantastic. It's one of our favorite things. And, but we were down in Birmingham and we were, you know, we were kind of around more. And, uh, so basketball is, is really fixes you in a geographic location up until you get into like an apex predator basketball athlete. And then, all bets are off. But by that point, you're raking in the name image. But that's true for any sport. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Jonah, I, I like that answer in some respects. Um, but being inside a gym, that's going to be really squeaky and loud all the time. I don't know. I might prefer, I like nature. I like to stare at the mm-hmm. trees. So I'm not going to be that into whatever's happening on whatever court. And I might want to just like watch some birds. Do you have an outdoor option for me? Yeah. So like, um, I mean, I, I think David's answer is perfectly defensible, but I agree with you that you're going to be, you're also, you, you also have to take into account the nature of the kinds of parents mm, that become yes. super invested in this. And do you want to hang out with those mm. people? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so, uh, I would argue my daughter did, uh, cross country, um, uh, towards late in her high school career, and she'd done bat. She was on the basketball team. She was co-captain basketball team. She'd done soccer when she was a little girl. Um, uh, in part because I sometimes feel a little awkward going to basketball games with my wife who gets really into basketball because she was a big basketball player in high school. And she like, she's much more vocal than I am at the games. And, uh, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Uh, and I'm hoping she doesn't listen to this. That's how I'm going to be at his orchestra concerts. Yeah, viola section, crushing <laughs> it, triple time. Yeah. Um, but cross <laughs> cross country, in my experience, uh, the crowds were great. The kinds of parents who show up were a lot of fun. And but because it's also spread out all over a big place, if you just want to walk away and be in your own spot for a little while, you know, it's okay. No one will see you because it's not like. like and then you and you can time when you got to be at the finish line, which is actually a great vibe with lots of parents encouraging everybody. I never saw jerky parents at um, a cross country thing um, in the way that I saw at every, virtually every other sport. Um, plus, I know that you said you don't actually care about the quality of life and happiness of your kid, but if they actually get <laughs> into cross head. country. Nope. <laughs> um, uh, it's something they can do on their own, you know, without 
you having to be part of it. You don't have to provide a lot of equipment. It's just a bunch of sneakers and it'll keep them, you know, it's a, it's a great way to stay in shape. Um, and I have to assume it's good for getting into college. I mean, the problem with basketball is they have to be really, really, really good at basketball sure. for it to be an issue about college because it's such, there's so many people who play basketball, but like some of these other sports, you can still get in. I mean, like you wouldn't, you don't want to have them do water polo, right? That's that we know. But, um, um, Anyway, I think cross country, and and that's not because Jack Butler made me say it or anything. So. I have another suggestion. Oh yeah, okay. Okay, this is way this is this is definitely off the beaten path, but awesome parents, super fun, not a huge amount of travel, and my son did it for a while until he got into basketball and football, trap and skeet shooting. Oh, that actually would be fun. It's a yeah. blast. There's one downside to it. It costs one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't include price in no. my hypotheticals. I sort of assumed a certain baseline, but you're right. I guess there are some sports, uh, horse polo, for instance, uh, <laughs> yeah. that could be fun, but maybe cost prohibitive. Well, right now, the two-year-old can actually throw a basketball into his little tiny tykes hoop, which is mind-blowing to me. I didn't think a two-year-old human could do anything. I have to tell you, like two years ago, I didn't know a two-year-old could like walk or talk probably. Um, and he's shooting basketball. So that does lean towards David's suggestion. On the other hand, we had a full meltdown. He walked in yesterday, two days ago, screaming at me that he wanted to go throw rocks in big water. And I was like, okay, why don't we just go down to your little kiddie pool in the yard and we'll throw, we'll find some rocks. No big water. So then I packed him up in the car and I was like, you know what? I, my only rule is he has to calm down, take a deep breath and be able to say it without crying. But he did that. Throw rocks in big water. Fine. We packed up in the car, drove to a nearby Creek. It was like a river runs through it. He's like in the middle of the Creek, just throwing rocks. Like he's fly fishing. Um, for an hour, he did this without stopping, no snack, no water, just an hour of throwing rocks in the water. So I don't know what sport that means if I did care about his happiness. Freeze the water and it's curling. <laughs> you do not want your kid. First of all, like like in the D.C. area, the opportunities for curling are few and far between. And I am sure you have to take whatever slots the figure skaters and the hockey players have left behind. <laughs> which are 4 a.m. Well, as I said, this wasn't worth any of y'all's time, but it was very much worth mine and, and I enjoyed it. So thank you. If you've made it this far, I hope it was edifying in any number of respects. Uh, and we will talk to you again next week. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.